Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was a band of angels and invitation from 1966. It's because I've got one of the era's greatest songwriters as well as the front man of Manfred Mann in the late 60s. A huge welcome, Mike. Thank you, Jason. It's lovely that you played that. Um, you're right. A band of angels, so a lot of people say the band of angels. It's all the same, but... We started off at Harrow School, yeah. and I have to say, I'm really indebted to, in particular, one guy who was still on in the band by the time we did Invitation, Johnny Gayden. He's no longer with us, but he and the first drummer we had, the Jamie Rugg Price, they were at uh, Harrow School with me, and since we were boarding, um, we used to board in different houses, and I used to see... Jamie uh, Rugg Price and Johnny Gade, and we tootle off to chapel every morning. We had to be there at 8.30 or 9 o'clock, yeah. and it was about a half a mile walk, and we would discuss the pop music scene, Cliff Richard, The Shadows, The Adam Faith, Marty Wilde, whatever it was. This would have been mm, about 1959, 60, that sort of time. Yeah. And, um, you know, we said, you know, Mike, you play the piano, and James... Rug Price played the drums, and Johnny Gayden sang a bit and played a bit of guitar. So we got this band together, and we all were inspired by a Christmas card that showed a, a band of angels, and it was like uh. angels up in the clouds sort of tooting their flutes and playing their harps. It was a sort of cartoon, really. It was meant to be funny. They looked as if they were three sheets to the wind, or whatever the saying is, and we said, a band of angels, and so that was the idea. It was a Christmas card that we decided to call ourselves that. And uh, we all left aged about 18, so that would have been 1962. Some of us took the plunge to turn professional. A couple didn't and said, no, no, they're going to stick with their jobs in the city. So over the years, the personnel did change. But by 19... 64, we'd got our first record deal with Decca, with Gus Dudgeon, oh. and Dick Rowe signed us, the guy oh, wow. who turned down... He didn't turn you down? No, no, he didn't. He, he signed us up. And uh, we we never released anything on Decca. So, fun enough, before that, I have to tell you that John Barry was our first record producer. Wow. And that was a song written by Johnny Baker, who was the lead guitarist in the band, Baker and Darbo, that's me, and um, it was a song called Me, and it was very Beatles influenced, and this would have been 1964, and the Beatles were my total and other heroes, so we were trying to emulate the Beatles, we sounded like them except when we spoke, you know, <laughs> we spoke with posh accents, but we couldn't help that. But, uh, you know, and this is how the song went. Me, 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 me. I want you. Me, 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 me. Please do. Come and bring your love to me. Bring your love to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was very Beatlesque, you know. Yeah. And that was me singing the harmony and the tune, which Johnny Gaden was singing, was me, 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 me. I want you. Me, 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 me. So we, it was a third harmony. And I was the Paul McCartney, and he was the Lennon. But John Barry mixed it in such a way that my tune came out a lot louder. Mm. And uh, it wasn't a hit, but we got on Thank You Lucky Stars. Janice Nichols 
because I'll give it five. <laughs> and I remember that day in 1964. And then we went went on to Dhaka, and finally we ended up on the pie label, or shall I say the Piccadilly label, signed by John Schroeder. And I'd written this song. This was probably our fifth single. Hmm. And for the first time, everyone in the band said, Mike, you should sing lead on this because... I was the harmony vocalist, the keyboard player, and that really was a turning point because, as you just heard, Invitation, that featured me as a singer. And I loved singing, but, you know, I had to... I didn't have much of an ego. I always thought that Johnny Gaydon, he didn't have the same sort of voice. It was more of a Scott Walker type of voice. But he sort of was the acknowledged front man, and all the girls loved him, and I was... I was a backroom boy, you know. In fact, I've got a... We did a hullabaloo with Brian Epstein presenting. That was an American TV show. And Brian Epstein, I'd like you to meet this band of old Williams. That's the school that Winston Churchill went to. And here they are with their new single. And um, I'm somewhere in the background. You hardly got a shot of me at all. All the shots are of Johnny Gayden and David Wilkinson, the bass player. Spin on a year or so later to invitation, and suddenly we get this offer to turn to do a television show called Whole Scene Going, uh-huh. and that was the turning point because literally Manfred Mann were on the same show, and when they walked into the studio, they were doing the playback of a band of angels doing invitation. Uh-huh. So when they walked in, they just saw me full frontal, you know, 95% featured lead vocalist. I was playing the keyboard, of course, but they didn't see so much the keyboard. They just saw this fairly soulful voice singing and trying to smile and looking pretty committed. And uh, unbeknownst to me, Paul had issued his, given in his notice, at least nine months to a year earlier, and they'd all agreed that he would have to wait till they found a replacement. So as they walked in, they're all looking at one another, eyeing one another and saying, look, this guy could be someone to pursue. So I didn't know any of this except Manfred came up to me and asked for my phone number. (laughs) So I thought, okay, well, I don't know what this is all about, but I better give it to him. And he phoned me the next day and invited me to lunch. I thought that would just be me and Manfred, but it actually turned out to be Tom McGuinness as well. In fact, Mike Hug wasn't there, but he should have been there. But Manfred's wife, Tom McGuinness and his wife, by this time I'd started, I'd, I was going out with the woman who became my first wife. She was a famous model, actually, Maggie London, and she was modeling that day when I got the call, and she rang me up at the end of the day and said, how's your day gone? And I said, oh, I've just had a called from Manfred Mann. He wants me to have lunch next week. I cannot think what that's about. I just no idea what he wants to chat with me about. As quick as a flash, she said, oh, they want you to join the band. So I guess that's women's intuition for you. And by the time this lunch came along, I, I thought, well, maybe they do. So I better look the part. I better get myself mentally prepared. And um, it took a while for Manfred to get around to raising the subject. So I just said after an hour, you know, we'd ordered our food. I said, what, what, you know, what's this all about? And he said, you're sworn to secrecy, but 
basically Paul's leaving the band, you could be a contender. <laughs> so I thought, okay, there you go. This is what I've been waiting to hear. I took it in my stride, but internally I was, you know, quaking in my boots. But I knew it was going to go further, so it was a question of whether I could pass the audition, <laughs> as they say. So, And I don't think I did really very well, because I, they said, look, you can't be anywhere near a keyboard. You've got to stand up. We've got... We're all keyboard players in this band. You know, Mike Hugg's really a keyboard player. Manfred certainly was and is. And so, you know, you can't have your cuddly toy or your <laughs> something blanket, you know, you, of the piano. Just stand up and sing, which I found pretty hard to do, especially after I'd seen Paul and the band. I, I went to see them at a gig, and I thought, oh, God, I could never pull this off. You know, I needed... The comfort blanket, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, of the keyboard to, as a prop, really. But I knew I couldn't do that, and uh, I was given various different songs to sing. Jack Bruce was still in the band then, and when I oh. I picked him up for a rehearsal one day, and he said, who are you? <laughs> and I said, well, I think I'm going to replace Paul, actually. And he said, well, if, that, if you're taking over from Paul Jones, I'm leaving the band to join a band with Eric and Ginger. So I suppose I contributed to the formation of Cream, in a way. That's one of my claims to fame. So I, I did one session with Jack, and that was that. Anyway, so, yes, I got the job. Yeah. I, I felt really self-conscious, because I was aware of the the Paul following, really, and, uh, and the stage presence. So I thought, well... Someone's got to do it. I, I, I want to do it, but I don't want to do it. And I sort of grew into the role gradually, bit by bit, I suppose. So what was the first single that you did or released with Manfred Mann then? Well, it was just like a woman. Right. It was, and I, I, I'm very fond of that. I don't think it was a great recording. It's a bit sort of... Boom, ding, ding. It was a bit sort of heavy, ham-fisted, I thought. It could have... But... It was a hit. It was a top ten. That was at the time that we put it out. Paul had already put out his first solo single, which was either I think it was High Time actually, right. High Time, <laughs> Long Time, no, you know. And he got to number eight. So in a way, the first round of, of the battle royal went to Paul, really. But we got the the television exposure. You know, we got the plugs. And um, very self-consciously, you know, I I sang it. Ribbons and the 
read some of them out because yeah. they bear relevance to what the conversation we're just having right now. I've decided to fill in some gaps where I was involved, perhaps, in an unflattering light. This is Manfred himself, right? After Hubble Bubble, we never released a single written by a band member. Tom remembers this decision being made by our producer, John Burgess. That may be true, but I remember the decision was primarily mine. Our first two hits, written by ourselves, 54321, but after the relative failure of Hubble Bubble, we focused on other writers for the single releases. This policy continued long after John Burgess was no longer our producer. The question is, why did I come to this conclusion? At the time, we were in competition with the very best groups in pop history who were writing their own material, and talented as some of us were as songwriters, I was very doubtful that we'd be able to consistently write hit records. Let me say, I was a lousy songwriter. Paul was good. Tom was better than me. Mike Hug became very good later on. Mike Darbo was very, very good. And it's to my discredit that I did not recognize it at the time. He had played me handbags and glad rags, and I didn't recognize how good it was. I'd grown up as a jazz musician in a world where the repertoire was largely songs that other performers had written, or the performers didn't write. Early records of Miles Davis, Errol Garner, and Oscar Peterson were not self-penned. Frank Sinatra didn't write his own songs. So for me, there was no shame in recording other people's songs. It was only when the Beatles arrived that being writer-performers became the standard. Of course, they were great writers that changed the landscape. The move towards catchy pop songs was largely motivated by me. We did become less and less bluesy, and this was in some ways a shame as the years went by. This was due to my endless search for the catchy song that was easy to whistle, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, Manfred goes there a long way, and this is only his roughness over the last few days, to explaining why maybe there was this frustration that we didn't ever deliver what collectively we could have done had we all pooled our resources. Having said that, you know, we were successful. The singles went out, were hits, and we did very, very well in Europe. I mean, Aha said the clown and obviously Mighty Quinn all went to number one in many, many countries in in Europe, you know, so it was it was a successful time, but it was not a totally fulfilling time. Given that you were in the Manfreds, um, certainly for the singles, recording covers or songs written by other artists, were you more comfortable with Dylan singles like Mighty Quinn? Yes. I mean, I wasn't a massive Dylan fan, actually, nor was Paul. That's one of the reasons Paul left. He was not a Dylan fan and didn't like singing If You've Gotta Go, which... I actually thought it was a great pop record. I think that's one of the best examples of a good pop record, you know, really catchy, really lovely. And that was Manfred and Paul had earmarked that song from a rare Bob Dylan concert that they'd seen televised. They they, they got a copy of the, the song very rapidly, and Paul reluctantly sang it, but he, he reluctantly sang... Pretty Flamingo, too. He did the one thing that. So the Dylan material, when we did it, you know, just like when we gave me a little bit of room to maneuver. Now, when we heard 
Quinn the Eskimo, as it was called, I will give you now an impersonation of <laughs> what was actually on the record. We, this is an update. We were taking up to Feldman's to listen to what's become known as the basement tapes. And on it were, well, there were about eight songs, I remember. The Waters of Oblivion, You Ain't Going Nowhere, Please, Mrs. Henry, Wheels on Fire, which I wanted to do. I came out of that session listening, you know, in our little individual cubicles, as Manfred and Tom and I did. We went in all with a copy each of each song. And I said, look, let's do Wheels on Fire. Manfred said, what about this Quinn the Eskimo? I said, well, there's no bloody tuner. <laughs> this is what it sounded like. Come on without, come on within. You'll not see nothing like the mighty Quinn. There was no tune. In fact, I created the chords. Manfred and I created the tune, the chords. This is what we heard from Dylan. Come on, yeah. Come on, well, what we did was, you know, um, come on without, come on without, you will not see nothing like a mighty quint. Now, that's not what we heard at all. So, actually, by the time, this is another part of the story. This thing I was reading out from Manfred today that he wrote, give you another part of the same letter. Mm. Basically, what, what I've told people for years and years is that Manfred refused to release the Mighty Queen because he said it wasn't a hit, having told me that we've got to do it because he thought it was a hit. This is what Manfred has to say. It was me who rejected the first recording of Mighty Quinn. Mike Darbo phoned me one day and said that Lou Reisner, who was our American head of Mercury, the American label, had said it would be a very successful record. I flatly disagreed because I was convinced it was too dreary. Mike was absolutely immovable and insistent that I was wrong and argued to have a band meeting at his house in London. There was a big disagreement looming. The rest of the story is history. And it's exactly how Tom remembers it. As soon as I heard the first few bars, I knew that I'd been wrong and realized it was Mike's turntable running fast. Well, the story is that we'd made this recording of the Mighty Quinn, yeah. which was still then called Quinn the Eskimo. And I'd made up the lyrics because I didn't know what Bob Dylan was singing. We never got offered a top line. So when I was singing, let me do what I want to do, it's... The real lyric is, it's a dog's howl and cat's mew, or cat's meow. I didn't know what I... I just sang phonetically what I thought he was singing. Then I said, Malcolm, we've got a hit in our hands. It's sounding great. And he said, no, it's too slow, and it needs a big brass band. So when Lou Reisner came round to the house, said, have you got anything we can put out in America? I played him this. Now... It was playing a little bit quick on my turntable. So, in fact, we recorded it in B-flat, which is here. Come on with that, come on with it. You'll not see nothing like the mighty quick. Now, when he heard it, it was up a semitone, which is very high to sing. Come on without, 
Everybody's gonna jump for joy Come on Pigeon's gonna run to him Come on without Come on within You'll not see nothing like the mighty Quinn Come on without Come on within You'll not see nothing like the mighty Quinn Let me do what I wanna do Everybody's gonna wanna doze I want to take you back a few years. I don't know how many people know this, but um, the Northern Lights, or the Hootenanny Singers, as were known in uh, Sweden, and the single Through Darkness Light, because you're there writing with Bjorn, who later was uh, in ABBA. I had no idea you knew anything about that. <laughs> well, yes, I remember it well. I told you right at the beginning that my first connection with the Band of Angels was with John Barry. Yes. Now, John Barry, because of his connection which was just about to start with the James Bond movies, he worked with United Artists, and Noel Rogers and Martin Davis were the sort of leading lights of United Artists, the record label. Obviously, it was also the film connection, too. And I can remember it very well, because the offices, we had John Coe, the Band of Angels who were managed by John Coast, who also managed Nina and Frederick. Also, he managed Marlene Dietrich, funny enough, oh. when she did her concert. And the floor above, in this particular place, Albert Gate, just in Knightsbridge, the floor above was United Artists. So we connected up that way. And I got to see a lot of John Barry. And Martin Davis said to me one day, he said, would you like to go out and produce a Swedish band? And maybe you've got a song. And I did have a song called Through Darkness Light, which nobody's ever heard of, but it did sort of sell, and I remember going out to recording it with them, with lovely Bjorn and his lovely sister, who was not in the band, but well, I'm pretty sure I'd, I didn't get to meet Benny Anderson, who became the other half of the great writing partnership of, of Bjorn and Benny. Bjorn Alvius and, and Benny Anderson. But yes, the thing that struck me, I, I remember it quite clearly, not only recording it, and I'm suggesting the harmonies and possibly even playing a bit of keyboard on it, 
But I remember the B-side had been written by Bjorn, and it was just beautiful. And I thought, what a talented guy, because when he sang, he sounded sort of English. When he sang, he seemed to have a command of the English language with the lyrics, beautiful lyrics. And that was 1969, and I think it was a number one hit. Probably sold 2,000 records. I don't know Mm. what the sales were in those days, but that came and went. And when suddenly Waterloo, you know, it absolutely blew my mind when ABBA came out. And I've always admired them ever since. In fact, I've had this crazy idea, which I will now share with you. This probably would never happen, but Bjorn was very interested in my songs. And about 10 or 12 years ago, I put out an album called Passion Driven, and he was a sod, which is a songwriter of distinction. Ah, like Mike Bat. Like Mike Bat, yes, and uh, as am I, I'm told. And uh, I wrote to him, and I said, you know, Bjorn, would you like a copy of this album I'm going to put out? And he said, oh, it's anything like some of the songs you wrote for us and played to us in in the late 60s. Yes, I'd absolutely love it. So I sent him it, and I never heard anything else. But this new album that I'm actually just putting out, which is really a set of demos, but still, I thought I would send it to him and say, look, I'd love you, it'd be an honor if you'd produce me for the, you know, the real album, because I know he would improve dramatically. Partly because what I think was the magic of ABBA was the trouble they took over recording the tracks. I think what I admire about Bjorn and Benny, and in fact the whole gang of them, is they prove that songwriting is a craft. And to me, songwriting is a craft, and it's a craft I'm still trying to perfect to this day.
handbags and clad rags will always be one of my favourites. And I know you get asked this all the time. <laughs> Maybe something that some people may not know about is that it was actually a riff off The Wind Cries Mary of a Jimi Hendrix record set you in motion of starting writing that. Is that right? I don't think I, I, I would hesitate to say a rip-off, but it is what inspired me, uh, even though the song itself, The Wind Cries Mary, is not a complete song and entity, but I was lucky enough to see Hendrix. I don't think I could say I got to know him. I probably met him on a couple of occasions, but I will take you now to the keyboard. This is the thing that came to me, was this... I'm not saying that was exactly what he did, but on a guitar solo, there was one particular phrase that kept coming back to me, and that's really what set off that chord sequence. But the thing about handbags, which may never ever be reproduced, was that it was a, a total marriage of lyric and chord and melody. Everything gelled for one magic half an hour without me knowing what I was doing, really. And this is what they call the muse at work. The muse is something that descends upon you, and you don't. It's it's beyond it. It's from other realms. So I knew I was hitting other realms or being inspired by something bigger than me, and I just kept sort of going. And I found myself writing, ever seen a blind man cross the road trying to make the other side, ever seen a young girl growing old trying to make herself a bride. The thing that then kicked it off, and you know, obviously I got the, the, the music to back it up, yeah. And what becomes of you, my love, when they have finally stripped you off? I thought, hang on, handbags and the glad rags. I need one more rhyme. So what becomes of you, my love, when they have finally stripped you off? The handbags and the glad rags that you... I thought it has to be granddad. Granddad's had to sweat so you can buy. Now, you know, I've heard people say, oh, we must have had a granddad. Well, it was, it was just a, the only other rhyme I could... I had to have that triple rhyme, handbags and the glad rags that your granddad's. Now, when I did it with Farlow, that's how he sang it. Yeah. And obviously I'm on piano. And funny enough, we've got Albert Lee, not only on guitar, but on harmonica, oh. which he picked a bit of. And that record came and went, charted in a minor way. When I played it, a few months later to Rod, because Andrew Oldham had phoned me and said, look, uh, I've got another artist we've just signed. Do you want to have a crack with this guy called Rod Stewart? And I went to see him with the Jeff Beck group, and I knew that I loved his voice. I mean, I never any question about that. There was Ronnie Wood on bass, there was Mick Waller on drums, and obviously Jeff on guitar. And I, I played him a number of songs, and he immediately said, <laughs> I've got to do handbags. And I said, well, look, I'm... The final stages of doing it with Chris Farley, you can't do that. So I talked him into doing another song of mine called Little Misunderstood, which 
He slightly reluctantly did. He said on condition that I can do the um, song when I get my album deal, because my deal, his deal with Immediate was just to do a single. And, of course, Little Misunderstood didn't really sell anything at all. Got a couple of plays. It was We did our best on that record, but there was something funny about the drum sound and technically didn't quite come off. And I tried him with backing vocals with a couple of, you know, I can remember them now, Vicky Brown, yeah. Joe Brown's wife, and uh, another girl who can't quite remember who it was now. And I, it worked better without using the girls. So I tried different mixes. Well, the thing I'm trying to get to is Rod sang this. In fact, it was up in B-flat when he did it. But the second verse, he said, Once I was a young man, and all I thought I had to do was smile. You were still a young girl, and you thought everything in style. Then he went on. Once you think you're in your house, you don't mean a thing without. And he went, the handbags and the classmates that your poor old granddad had to sweat to buy. And I sort of wasn't producing him then. This was Lou Reisner producing him. I said, well, look, Rob, we've got to do another take. You're just singing the wrong lyrics. <laughs> Lou Reisner said, no, no, that's it. I said, well, we did take one, and that was the, all we did. Well, what I wanted from Rod, and, you know, he wrote about it. He, he thought I was an old passport, I think, <laughs> his biography. But I had written, once I was a young man, and I thought all I had to do was smile. You were still a young girl, and you bought... Everything in style, so there's an internal run. So Rod's singing, once I was a young man and all I thought I had, and he, he missed the internal rhyme. Well, okay, I sort of got over that one. But then when he sang, the handbags and the glad rags, that's your poor old granddad. I thought, no, you missed my handbags and the glad rags at your granddad. Okay, but at least he'd sung it the way I wanted it once. When the stereophonics came to do it, they'd gone, handbags and the glad rags, hit your poor old granddad. And by this time, if I play this song now to a younger audience, they say, you're singing the wrong lyric. <laughs> well, I only write, wrote the bloody song, so what do I know? <laughs> so these are the little frustrations that come along the way, if you're a purist like I am. But um, no, I, I think Farlow's version sort of started it off. And it was lovely. And, you know, when <laughs> if you listen to him today sing it, he sings the handbags and the glad rags and the jewelry and the sweatshops and the. He sort of. Everyone then gives it a new interpretation. But um, I still believe that that song has yet to be completely covered in a way that completely fulfills me. But I'm grateful for Rod because. When he came round to the house and said, oh, he'd finally got his album deal and he wanted to do it the next day and would I play piano on it, which I did. Unlike the stereophonics, his piano player didn't grasp the riff at all, which is another little bugbear of mine. But these are things, you know, in the big scheme of things, who cares? But what the stereophonics did, I'm back at the piano, he's playing it like this. Yeah, you got to, you must go to that way side as well. 
is all this is what I call Floyd Kramer type of stuff. Stereophonic side didn't get the glass for that at all. But there's a lovely organ part on on uh, the stereophonics, or you know, with Kelly Jones's vocal. What we what Rod said to me at the time was, "Can you disguise this this piano thing by coming up with a, a woodwind melody?" So I created. So that's what I created for Rod, and that's what the stereophonics copied. If Rod hadn't said to come up with a counter melody, we wouldn't have had that little extra bit of magic. The thing that I do now with, with when I sing it, and I sing it you know, pretty regularly, and will be, I'm about to go on tour, not with the Manfreds, but with uh, the Sensational Seasons. When we did it with Farlow and with Rod, there was a third version. I sing a song of Christmas for you speak. I take a bottle full of rice. And the bass note remains the same. But now when I do it, you know, I've been doing it this way for years. Coming into uh, the verse three, I go. Sing a song of Christmas for you, please. I'm gonna take a bottle for you, right? becomes a real rock and roll thing. And then at the end, I go, Let your granddad have the sweat, so you did
never seen a blind man cross the road Trying to make the other side Ever seen a young girl growing old Trying to make herself a bride So what becomes
One of the other huge singles that you've written, or, or in this case, co-written, is Build Me Up Buttercup. What was the uh, writing process of that with Tony McCauley? Yeah, well, that's a very interesting story, actually. As is anything about any, any one's musical career, there are so many fascinating things, bits of luck, bits of things that nearly didn't happen, you know, like Sandy Shaw was offered, it's not unusual, wasn't she? Mm. Turned it down, and Evie Taylor, her manager, said, well, I think the guy who sings the demo is quite good, and that was Tom Jones, <laughs> who ended up singing it himself. That's how his career started. <laughs> it was being offered by Gordon Mills, the writer, to um, Sandy Shaw. Anyway, I've written a song. Here I go, back to the piano. Mm. I've got to play. I can't resist this opportunity. No, please. Uh, of showing you... Yeah. How the song was before Tony McCauley got involved, because it's the same song, only it's much shorter. Right. I said, Tony, I've got a song called Build Me Up Buttercup, and it went like this. making enough of the chorus. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, when you go, uh, uh, build me a body, must be right, the worst of all, you never call baby when you say you will, but I love you still, I need you, more than anyone, darling, you know that I have from the start. So that's the bit that we co-wrote together. So my song was the same song, but it didn't quite have that end hook on it. So he felt I was underselling the song, and he was right. The other thing I'm grateful to him, which is another fluke, actually, because at the time he said, I'm looking for songs for David Essex, for the Paper Dolls, Long John Baldry, and maybe the Foundations. And he said... This is going to be the next single for the Paper Dolls. Mm. And I remember we'd met over the weekend, sort of rewriting it. And I think on Monday, he said, can you come in the studio, do a little demo of it? I'll play tambourine, you sing and do the piano, which we did. And then on the Tuesday, he rang and he said, the Paper Dolls can't get down from Stockton on Teaser and Cabaret. They've been booked for an extra week. Do you mind if I try it with the foundations? And I said, no, I don't mind. When do you want to do it? And he said, Friday. Can you be free to play the piano? So I said, yeah. He said, I'll routine it with him on the Friday morning. But this was a last-minute decision. It was meant to be the next single for the Paper Dolls. David Essex, meanwhile, had turned it down. Mind you, no one had heard of David Essex in 1968. Mm. But he was a young that up-and-coming, good-looking blues drummer, actually. And he turned it down. He said, I wouldn't sing a song about a, a cow. <laughs> so I came along, 2 o'clock, totally routined the brass section in the morning. We walked away at 6 o'clock. We'd recorded the A and the B side, and we all went home and thought nothing more about it. 
But the extraordinary thing was, I knew it was a good record, even though I didn't think Tony had chosen the right vocal from Colin Young. I remember when I came back at about six, I said, you've changed the vocal. He said, oh, yeah, it wasn't right. I said, well, I thought it was great, the old vocal. Anyway, he stuck to his guns, and he must have been pretty right, because it went huge in America. There was a huge catch, though, to all this. And that was that Motown claimed we were infringing big, well, it wasn't a hit, actually, but it was a B-side of a Four Tops hit called Turn to Stone. Then I tell you, man, I turn to stone, turn to stone. And I sort of half heard Turn to Stone, I suppose. Well, there were a couple of similarities in the, the chords. And immediately they issued an injunction saying, and, and all the money that would have come to our Scott Frozen went into escrow. And uh, there was a court hearing in New York, which, of course, we didn't even really know about. We tried to get his offense mounted, but we couldn't sort of get anything very effective together. And the judge found in favor of Motown and said, yes, Bill Mayer Buttercup is an infringement of Turnderstone. Well, Turnderstone, they put out as a single... He got to number 76 in the American charts, but Bill Mill Buttercup had got to number two, and in Canada it got to number one. So obviously ours was more successful. There was $4 million that went straight into Motown's coffers, and which Tony and I never saw a penny. In fact, I was not paid a penny for Bill Mill Buttercup until 25 years later when the court order was became null and void, and we got our share... So that would have been 1968, 1978, 1988. Yeah, 1991 was the first time around that I got paid a penny on Buttercup. But um, these things are sent to trial. So in fact, the good news was that in 1998, yes. they chose the Forelli Brothers, chose that as the theme, well, the sort of theme song for uh, something about Mary. So we made some money back on them, which we should have made back in the 60s.
with the fortunes. I think you wrote and produced Loving Cup. Yes, I was proud of that. I was proud of that. I didn't know you knew about that. It's a great track. That was again the Martin Davis and Noel Rogers put me together. Yes, that was it with lovely Rod Argent. I was trying to recreate the sort of thing that the two Rogers, Greenway and Cook had done with You Got Your Troubles, I Got Mine. You know when you get a counter-melody going. See, I love writing songs. I write songs every day of my life. The lucky thing was, in those days, there were still people saying, have you got any songs? Yes, I had songs, but I was still working on my craft. Now I've all liked to think I've perfected my craft. Me 
the thing about the 60s and the 70s was, even though I, my skills were in their infancy, there was that outlet, and that was a lovely thing. I, that was what was great about writing TV commercials, which I did, of course, that you could write in so many different genres. I remember writing a thing for Golden Wonder. semi-classical thing for um, Roundtree's Dairy Box. And I used to turn on the telly of an evening and I'd see about three or four of my commercials on. It was That was more in the 70s and it was magic. A finger of fudge. Oh, a finger of fudge. Well, yeah. That stayed on air for 14 years, which is <laughs> incredible. And um, in fact, somebody said it was a mix of the Lincolnshire poacher. <laughs> yeah, I'm again. That had Klaus, my lovely friend Klaus, playing the recorder too, yeah, you know, um, and he of course played the piccolo on on the mighty Quinn. In fact, um, Klaus, I'm still in touch with him. He's such a lovely guy. Lives, lives in Germany. Varman. And um, he sent me a lovely book the other day, which is a, a cartoon version, a recreation of how he did the revolver cover. Yeah. And it's a beautiful story about, because, of course, he knew the Beatles from Hamburg days. He, when I joined with Klaus, he was like a soulmate because we were the new boys. And Tom and Manfred, in particular, and Mike Hug, they were the, the guys who knew it all. And we were just the new young blood who didn't want to step out of line, you know? Yeah. And, uh, in fact... Not unlike the feeling that Ronnie Wood had when he, he interviewed, I was lucky enough to interview him a few years ago, and he said, oh yeah, I'm still the new boy, you know, <laughs> I only joined in 1976. <laughs> and you never lose that feeling, and I get that feeling of sort of obviously with Paul, you know, and if it hadn't been for Paul leaving the band, I wouldn't have had a job or be having this chat that we're having now. A finger of fudge is just enough to give your kids a treat. A finger of fudge is just enough until it's time to eat. It's full of capri goodness, but very small and neat. A finger of fudge is just enough to give your kids a treat. It's full of capri goodness, but very small and neat. A finger of fudge is just enough to give your kids a treat. You mentioned Rod Argent before when you were talking about the fortunes. Was he the connection or the reason that Colin Blunstone recorded your song, Mary Warm My Bed? 
Well, I don't know. I, I got to know Conway quite well. I know you had Chris Gunning, who a, was a lovely arranger. And he just sort of heard it and wanted to do it, didn't he? Yeah. In my mind, I was trying to be Marvin Gaye <laughs> or Stevie Wonder, who were my absolute heroes. And uh, Colin, who's got a lovely, lovely voice. I mean, oh, wow. He was a star so young. I mean, when she's not there, he was only 18. He was touring America aged 18, something like that. No, I remember him doing it, but I can't think of how, except he must have heard the album that I'd done. Or maybe, as I say, with Chris Gunning, who is a lovely uh, arranger, might have heard it. But I have toured with Colin, you know, with, as one of the Manfreds. And of course, he filled together with Rod Argent. Now, there is also a, a lovely man, a, a huge talent.
your solo work. There's so much to shine a light on which deserves to. The uh, single of yours, Belinda, from your album Down at Rachel's Place. I was trying to Belinda. I just couldn't quite pull it off. I don't think I quite have the charisma, that sort of magic that you need. Elton John has it, you know, Cat Stevens. These old people, Carol King and Cat Stevens and Elton John were people I was watching their solo, what I call singer-songwriter careers, and I thought, I can do that. But I never quite pulled anything off in the studio that just sounded... Like yeah, that's gonna that's gonna get radio play easily. It never quite sort of quite gelled. There was some lovely stuff. I mean, yeah, Belinda, I love that song. Quite proud of the lyric too. I seem to remember. I know it's in B flat. Let me see if I can remember. It'll come to me. Belinda driving through my head, One thing about she was yeah, Belinda was this meant to be. I mean, they're all fictitious. All these yeah. girls I had such an exciting love life, as my songs claim. <laughs> but um, she wandered out into the street barefoot. I can't remember what it is. Wonder, yeah. So let's go see the pigeons in Regent's Park Zoo. I remember that period of my life. That's when I was actually managed by. Barry Cross, who managed Cat Stevens. Yeah. And he got me the deal with A&M, and A&M had high hopes for me. You know, I was flown out to meet Jerry Moss, and I got to know Herb Alpert, and I got to meet uh, the guy who produced all Carol King's. Anyway, they were lovely, lovely people, but I just didn't quite deliver in the grooves. It's got to be in the grooves. Belinda's running through my head Some girl, some Somewhere Just for the weekend Till she sent me home I'll never be the same again Her loss My gain She conquered My person I worsen Each day Thanks for 
it's over But Lord knows I tried Well, but I couldn't match that appetite I'd chew, but you would bite And for afters You'd wanna And having said that, yeah. this album I'm just putting out, literally, I took it to be pressed today. Oh. This is a private circulation of 250 I'm doing for this tour that I'm doing. Funny enough, with the fortunes, it's with Dozy Beaky Mick and Titch, the fortunes, the swinging blue jeans, Vanity Fair, and myself. Yeah. They're demos I've been making over the years at home. And I go into my local studio, and I actually, two or three of the tracks are in the grooves. They've really got a sort of thing. I hear them, in particular one track, which is called Keep It Beautiful. This album, it's called Shades of Blue, Songs Old and New, recorded between 2007 and 2022. 14 tracks, a whole range of songs. There's a purpose to each living thing 
From the lizard to the lion king See the limpet as he tries to cling to what he can It's getting harder Living through this climate change Makes a creature start to feel deranged Now we've reached such a crucial stage It's in our hands So keep it beautiful This world wonderful mm. She grows vulnerable This world And we're responsible Quite a lot of um, followers in Holland. Oh yeah! And one of my favourite songs of yours was a big hit over <laughs> in the Netherlands by Anita yeah. Meyer. They don't play our love song anymore, which is wonderful. You wrote that in the mid seventies or well before her version. Yes, yes, many years before. Stuff I write is sort of timeless, really, because I write in a yeah. proper idiot in a musical format, and it suddenly got picked up. Yes. I know, it's very nice. But yes, I remember that was. It went to number four or five in Holland. Yeah. And then I got lucky with a guy. I co-wrote a song with Michael Murphy in a country music, which you made. Did you ever hear Love Love Affairs? I don't know if I've heard that. I'll tell you, it was probably 81, 82. Right. It was a 
country hit got me a BMI country award. So over the years, there have been these little shatterings. Once we used to sing along in perfect harmony To a song that used to sell well in our days Everyone who heard that song would sing that melody Yet it's funny how the time has slipped away haven't heard it for a while Correct me if I'm wrong But it's been ages since I've heard that song They don't play our love song anymore And no one in the world will sing the part with that We kept thinking of that song And the way we used to dance When it would play We'd been growing older Staying home nights far too long So we tried the places Where the band still played I walked up to the man who sang The song I Buttercup and handbags have been the big ones for me. Talking about Buttercup, I'll just give you one, and then we I know yeah. you've got to go, and I've got to go. I'll give you one quick thing that you won't have heard. 
This is the, the ballad version of Buttercup. Maybe that's how we should close the podcast with your your new, more soulful, slower version of Build Me Up Buttercup. I think that would be a great idea. And it's a bloody good recording, actually. And uh, that's, again, an invitation for somebody out there to sort of take it in that direction. You know, a current artist with a, a great soulful sort of version. Anyway, Jason, I've taken up all your bloody evenings. Sorry, man. You can take up as many of my evenings as you like. Mike, it's been amazing to talk to you. And maybe that's one of the themes of this podcast and and your work is that the songs are so strong that you've written is that they can be remodelled in different styles and, and they still hold up like Build Me Up Buttercup. Reinterpreted, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time, your compassion and your interest and all those good things. I feel I found a new soulmate. (laughs) Oh, there's no bigger compliment, Mike. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much. Okay, that's a deal. Jason, bless you. Talk to you again soon, all right? I'd better ring off. Take care then. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. To let me down You mess me around And then worst of all You never call darling When you say you will Yet I love you still I need you Need you More than anyone darling It's been that way From the start so build me up, build me up, my buttercup, don't break my heart. I'll be over at ten, you tell me time, Malachim, but you're late, I'll wait around and then Let me down again Baby, baby Try to find A little time for me And I will make you happy, darling I'll be Beside the phone Waiting for you To let me down, let me down. You mess me around, and then worst of all, worst of all. you never call darling when you say you will. Say you will. But I love you still. I need you, need you more than anyone, darling. It's been that way from the start. Oh, my buttercup, don't break my heart.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.